because after 18 years, probably 17 and a half of those years have just been outputting music. And it's, it's important, I think, to, to let go and get a little bit of perspective sometimes. You know, record some dirt, why not? Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Sound Iron Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Peters. And today on the Sound Iron Podcast, we talk with award-winning composer Jason Graves. Guaranteed, if you play video games, you've heard Jason's music as he's composed music for games like Dead Space, The Order 1886, Until Dawn, Tomb Raider, Far Cry, and the upcoming video game Moss, which we discuss in the podcast. We also talk about his upcoming YouTube channel in the works, the challenges of composing for video games versus film, influences and his new home studio and he talks about his setup and how it allows him to work fast and much much more so stick around thank you jason i really appreciate you uh you know taking the time to talk with me today and um that's funny that the very first thing that you mentioned was uh, your youtube channel and uh, i saw you you know do some posts a while back talking about the idea of doing a youtube channel how's that been coming along and uh have have you ever come up with a name for it yet Uh, i've it's coming along well. Honestly, the biggest hurdle has been the software, just to figure out, like, I mean, if you Google, like, good software for vlogging or good software for recording YouTube channels or something like that, you get about 80 different things. So I've been trying a bunch of different stuff out in my spare time, and I use those air quotes very strongly. So it's taken a little longer <laughs> than I expected. But I've got, um, there's this software called OBS Studio, which seems... Yeah. really really cool uh, i'm i'm using that and i can switch cameras and do a couple of other things um but i'm just using a webcam you know i it's so easy to compare yourself to a bunch of other things that are really professionally done with like external cameras and multiple people and it's just me in a room actually this would probably be yeah. since you're watching the video thing this would pretty much be more or less what it is i do have um i do have a name and plans for um some different things, but I'm not going to reveal any of that yet because I sort of want to do a little cat out of the bag yeah. all at once kind of thing. But I'm going to have um, either three or four episodes ready within the next couple of weeks and just put them all up at the same time so that it's you know not a hurry up and wait kind of thing, like people sitting around after yeah. the 30-second intro video, like, is he ever going to release anything else? That's awesome. Yeah, I, when I saw you announce it, I got pretty excited about it because I was just, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. and I appreciate you know, that. The idea of of uh, composers who, you know, have a really awesome career doing a lot of really cool things, sharing their knowledge with people like me who, even if, you know, you're just a fan of the composer, just like watching what they're doing, I think it's really cool. And that's awesome of you to do that. Well, that's great to hear, because to be perfectly honest, the last couple of days, I felt extremely self-conscious because I keep, (laughs) I've never recorded myself. I mean, like voiceover things are one, and I'll maybe do an EQ or something like a compressor when we finish this. That's fine. But video wise, it's like you see all your little ticks and all your everything else, and I'm trying not to make it a, make it a big deal. And I want to do something so that it's really, it's live which is why OBS Studio works great, because you can switch things out on the fly. Um, Less work for me on the back end, which means I can get more stuff out quicker, but it also means I've been doing all these tests and watching myself speak. I think no one enjoys watching themselves. No. (laughs) So it's a bit of a... (laughs) I know. I I totally, yeah, I feel your pain on that. It's a bit of a a letdown. Um, 
but I so want to do that and get, I mean, you can see where I am. I'm, I've moved. I used to be in this amazing studio, but we're uh, in a city. We've moved out to the country, so I'm in a, literally like a spare bedroom. And that was sort of the, the impetus behind it was I thought everyone just assumes that if you've worked on a game that um, is considered a bigger game that a bunch of people have played, that you're in this amazing studio and, you know, you drive all these fancy cars and you live in a mansion. And, I mean, most of us are just normal, um, normal people. And I like the idea of the fact that I'm drilling holes in the wall to put PVC pipes so I can run cables to the drums next door. That's an everyday sort of thing. There's nothing fancy going on here. And if, if I can figure out how to wire my stuff, then... Surely I can explain it simply enough, I hope, to help everyone else figure out how to do it the same way. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So this is going to be your new studio? This is my, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of, <laughs> one of the names of the uh, shows, uh, an episode that I want to do is called um, the Temporarily Permanent Studio, because this is, <laughs> this is my temporary studio, but it's sort of my temporary long-term studio because I want to build something big enough that I'm not going to outgrow like ever, which means pretty, pretty large. And I've got this really big piece of land. We've got about um, 28 acres here. So I have lots of choices, but I have to figure out where it's going to go and how big it's going to be and kind of what I want to build in future-proof wise. And so far we have the site picked out, but it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be years before it gets finished. So I'm happily, happily ensconced in this little room, this well, configuration of rooms. I've got other rooms that I'm using as well. But yeah, it seems like spare bedroom with some panels on the wall. You know, I bet I know a couple of composers that can relate to that. Yeah, I think that's probably most people nowadays can relate to that. I mean, I can. I mean, pretty much when I moved into this new apartment, uh, the first thing that I did was like, okay, I got to set up the studio and figure out where you want to put all your acoustic panels and all that sort of thing. And And even then I keep it pretty you know, pretty downplayed, just enough to sort of kill the little extraneous reflections and stuff. Exactly. And that's kind of more or less what I'm doing, too. I think um, eventually I'm going to knock a wall down. You, you can't see, but there's a this is like a, a 12 by 12 square room. But there's a wall where there's a closet over here that goes into where my drums are. And I'm going to knock that wall down and like put some hardwood down and do some proper acoustic treatment and you know, when I have a month that I can stop working and take everything and yeah, it's, it's a daunting task. Moving in and of itself, maybe a year and a half ago was about a month of oh, yeah. tearing down and setting back up. And I'm kind of comfortable now, but everything needs to be rewired again. <laughs> it's just, it's one of those things. We all, we all deal with it, right? Yeah. Especially when you have everything set up, like, I mean, most of the time people's cables, behind you know their computer and all that or if they have rack equipment it's just usually you just plug it in forget about it yep. and then when you have to actually deal with it you're just pulling your hair out like oh god <laughs> yeah it was it was a pretty i had a patch bay in the old studio i mean like a four 96 point single rack so whatever four times 96 is that's how many extra cables i had in the studio because everything went into the patch bay and that was a bit of a Whew, just trying to detangle that and figure out how to use like half of it, but not all of it. And I've changed the studio around a little bit now. And it's, um, 
Yeah, first world problems and all that, but definitely when you have to do like two or three minutes of music a day, the studio needs to work like full time. And there's not a lot of yeah. time for playing around. You know, you kind of get it set up and you're afraid to touch anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so other than that, I saw that you were working on the Moss game, right? With You're working with Polyarch on that? Yes. Um, is that done? It is. is. Completely the, done? The game came out um, three, three weeks ago, I think. It was like the third week in March, I believe it came out. And I just saw um, PlayStation tweeted that it was the number one VR game of March, which is pretty cool considering oh, wow. it had only been out for like a third of the month, I think. Oh, um, congratulations. Thank you very much. That was so much fun. And like I said, I'm doing a bunch of um, Moss-specific PR right now, but it's so great because on some of them, I get to do it with the audio director, Stephen Hadi, and he's such an amazing guy. I love hearing him talk about <laughs> the way he implemented all the sound design. You know, he recorded a lot of that stuff himself and sort of his idea of storybook audio in a forest as opposed to like National Geographic audio in a forest. And it's always great hearing someone else kind of give ideas of what your music means to them. And Steven knows the score probably better than I do now. But that was <laughs> so much fun to work on and so different from anything that I've had a chance to do before. I think there's three tracks out. Uh, Polyarch has a SoundCloud page. And there's three mm -hmm. tracks out sort of as a preview, and we are working on the soundtrack release as we speak. Yeah, I actually got a chance to hear the three tracks, and they sounded really good. Oh, sweet. I don't remember what tracks were on there. I know Maluka's song was on there, which is my favorite thing. There's some really great, fun combat tracks that don't sound anything like combat tracks. I don't think... <laughs> Maybe one of them was on the preview. I don't know. I should have done my own personal research to see what they were. But it was great because it's all this little teeny tiny mouse and it's in VR. So you really get a sense that you, as a third person in the game, are life size and this mouse is mouse size. You get a very strong sense of scale, how small she is. So it was a lot of fun playing lots of little tiny instruments and things to kind of relate her <laughs> size and the scope of the game to the listener through the through the music. I could I could go on to autopilot for Moss because that's what I've been talking about lately. I'm just going to be quiet yeah. and let you keep talking and <laughs> asking questions and guide the conversation however you see fit. No, it's all good. Yeah, whatever you want to talk about too. You primarily do a lot of video games, um, but you also do film and TV, right? So uh, do you... Do you have anything film or TV-wise that you've been working on, too, or has it just mainly been video games lately? It's mostly been games lately. Um, it's sort of like games are what I focus on. Games are what I go after. Like games are um, my career is in doing music for games, but I don't really consider myself a game composer, and I know that probably mm -hmm. seems contradictory a little bit. But I do compose for film and, and TV and commercials and trailers. I did TV and commercials and trailers a lot when I was in L.A. back in the day when I was first getting started. Mm -hmm. That was pretty much how I cut my teeth. And film, I do occasionally when I'm asked, and it's a project that will, that will work out because 
inevitably it's a lower budget film, but it's with friends of mine or it's with um, something that has a really powerful message that I really connect with. And I enjoy working on the score just because it's kind of a, an outlet to write music a different way because it's so linear. I've done a couple of films yeah. in the last maybe three years, but it's not, I don't live in Los Angeles. So TV is sort of off the table, I mean, for big TV. I have lots of music that uh, is licensed that gets used in TV shows all the time, um, more of the reality TV and things like that. But uh, for film, uh, it's usually people that are out here on the East Coast where I am in North Carolina, and they're interested in working with me to come up with something original and fun, just like the game people do. And honestly, I write the music the same way, in terms of emotion and connecting with the listener and all that great stuff. But it's a lot more simple because it's just you write a linear piece of music and it matches to the picture and the picture never changes. You can watch the scene again. The scene plays the exact same mm -hmm. way. There's a lot less moving parts with film. So I do enjoy doing that. You can kind of exercise different muscles where with games, the interactivity really comes into play and it's almost like you're you're making a patchwork quilt and you're making all the separate little squares and then you're letting the game or the player via the game assemble those squares into, you know, different colors of quilts depending on their their choices. What do you find to be more challenging? I guess just depends cuz you know sometimes a lot of people complain about when they're doing something for film and then they get all the, you know, a ton of edits sent back to them and then they have to sort of like re-modify how everything is to the picture like do you normally not have to deal with that too much or have you ever had any cases where it was just just a ton of work to fix um for for film the biggest challenge and this is again just for me uh personally has been more the turnaround time than than anything else because i like to have the 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 reels or the scenes that I'm working on be as close to finished as possible and a lot of times everything kind of comes online at at the end and it's not in chronological order and it'll end up being a lot of work compressed into a small amount of time and usually not a huge budget I mean that's why I sort of say my my career is in games that's how I support my family that's how I make a living the, the bigger games have bigger budgets. And since I'm not working on bigger films, like a Marvel film or something like that, they naturally have smaller budgets. So it's more of a, a passion than it is uh, I'm gonna make a living scoring film. And that makes it tricky because I'm juggling maybe a super low budget project that I'm having so much fun working on with a really big budget project that is also fun um, but sometimes we'll ask for music at the exact same time. And scheduling for me can be the, or prioritizing and workload can be the biggest challenge. Because it, it literally is, it's just me by myself here in North Carolina. I don't have any assistants or, or interns. I don't farm any work out. Um, everything I do, like if, if cables are being made, I'm the one making the cables. If the patch bay is being rerouted and soldered, that's me. If, you know, if, it's pretty much I'm the one-man studio and it can get challenging sometimes if you have something for film and then I'm still writing library music fairly actively um, for placement and just for general albums and things like that. I think it's important for any composer nowadays to have a lot of plates in the air spinning so that their eggs aren't in one basket and 
Most of the time that's good because you've got all these different things to dip your toes into, but sometimes they all stack up <laughs> and, and deadlines can align in a way that, you know, you just know you're not going to sleep for five days and then hopefully you can sort of make it up on the back end. Being that, I think that's awesome that you do do so much by yourself. I remember seeing an interview where you were saying how you recorded, you know, you mix, you master everything yourself. <laughs> uh, could you tell us a little bit about sort of the, the studio setup that you have and some of the things that you do to sort of speed up your writing either in or out of the box? Sure. Um, it should probably be said that I don't do it all myself because I think I'm the best person for the job. <laughs> it's sort of come out <laughs> of necessity. I was only in LA for a couple of years, and when I was there, I didn't have the kind of work I had now. There, I, I didn't need anyone. I mean, I definitely needed someone to mix the stuff for me, but I could not afford to pay a mixer, come mix my you know, really poorly produced reality TV score that I did last night. That's just not, you know, it's not the kind of thing that would have been done. Um, and the irony is now that I am in the position where I could say, wow, I could really use some help getting this album mixed or mastering this uh, soundtrack that's going to come out and I could allocate money for it, there's just not anybody around here. And I do have a mixer that I love named Satoshi who also does recording stuff for me now. He's got a fantastic ear and I'll send stuff to him. He's in New York now. Other than that, uh, and that's only been in the last nine months I met him. So that one thing aside, I've always done it myself. And that includes, I never went to recording school. I got a degree in composition and I went to USC in California. It was for film and TV at the time, there wasn't games. I think they have games added now, which is super cool. But even anything from orchestration um, to, to, to wiring and you know tip ring sleeve and impedance and all that stuff, I have an entire library in the closet of probably 70 or 80 books with little geeky post-it notes everywhere. And <laughs> uh, when I first got into my studio that I had built for myself, in my old house in 2013, I realized how amazing anything could sound in a really well-treated room. So I started learning more about microphones and researching and buying them, figuring out the difference between like a ribbon or a tube and learning a lot about recording techniques and things, again, mostly through books. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. big on YouTube only because I, I, I get frustrated trying to find the exact thing that I'm looking for. and a lot of times it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff and figure out which 30 minute video should I spend the next 30 minutes watching because I'm not really sure yeah. uh, what their experience is versus mine or if they're even going to talk about specifically the kind of thing I'm looking for. And books have always been kind of my friend. So that's the long-winded version of why I do all of this myself. Um, I found with the game schedule especially, I need to do anywhere from two to four minutes of music a day for a game, and that's consistently. So if it's, if let's just say it's three minutes of music a day, that means I need to spit out 15 minutes of music a week, which means I'm doing 60 minutes a month, assuming four weeks in the month, and I work backwards from a schedule. Okay, if, I, if it's three hours long and I have three months to do it, then I know I need to do two minutes a day. And that's not messing with anything else. That's literally coming in in the morning at 8.30 or 9, writing music, finishing at 5, and then going and doing something else. So 
the hardware that I do use is pretty much set up and like left in place and, and locked so that all my mic preamps, I don't have to change any of the levels because my 22 microphones that I have set up are all going into specific preamps routed to specific inputs that have specific labels in Cubase. And I know if I wanna use um, Bode Gong, for example, that I've got a 121 Royer ribbon mic on the gong and all I have to do is go to my input list and find 121 and I know that that's the Royer. The, there's already a cloud lifter on it so it's got extra gain, it's going into a, a ribbon mic preamp and the levels are already set. I literally can just hit record, walk into the other room where all my percussion is, put my headphones on that are already in there and ready to go and play. And I know the signal's gonna be good, I don't have to run back and forth and get test levels or anything like that. Same thing with my drum set. A lot of the stuff just, it doesn't move for me. So it's, I found it easier to invest in more microphones and more stations for recording, especially since I'm a drummer, recording a lot of percussion or even guitar or anything like that. All the stations are set up and I never have to touch them. And the same thing can be said for my outboard synthesizers. I have specific inputs that are always labeled. They're always turned on. The presets are always saved as automation in the project. I've got way too many guitar pedals that I use for effects, both in stereo or in mono. And that's actually fun because half of them, you can't automate them. You just have to go and twist knobs. And I love doing that as well. Some of my older synths are the same way. But a lot of the stereo ones are automatable via MIDI so everything can pop up immediately and I can go from one project to another and everything kind of instantaneously comes back to the way it was when I left it, maybe the day before or the week before. Having that kind of recallability is essential to me. And most of the time when I'm delivering music, it's in stem format, either for interactivity or just for in-game mixing or simply lack of repetition. Maybe it's a five or six minute piece like for Stephen Hadi with Polyarch, it's a great example. A six minute piece, he gets all the individual instruments and he can make it interactive, but he can also do alternate mixes so that we're never really hearing the music loop. And that was very important for Moss because I don't know the percentage, but it's a very high percentage of music playing most of the time. Even when you die or it goes to another level or something is loading, the music's always playing, the sound effects are always going. So to spit out all those stems, I realized that a lot of the hardware that I had invested in, I had a Manly Massive Passive and an API 2500 and a Clarifonic EQ and uh, another mastering thing that I'm blanking on at the moment. But that's all for stereo. And it sounds amazing and I, I loved it. But after two and a half years, I hadn't used it once and it, it kind of broke my heart, but I just don't deliver in stereo anymore. The only time I would ever use it is if I was mastering a soundtrack. And by this time, I'm a huge UAD fan and Universal Audio had the 2500 and the Massive Passive software versions. And I did blind tests, me and a friend of mine, and we couldn't tell the difference. And to use something for you know two days out of the year, it just seemed that that stuff would have been better served at another studio where someone's gonna use it a lot more. So I got rid of it. Yeah. I, I have no attachments to gear. If, if I'm not using it, I'd rather let someone else use it. So the gear that I have, while it does stay put and it doesn't get tweaked except patches and things like that, if it, like I trim all the fat 
really, really quickly. See, I told you that I can talk. It's probably been, what, 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah, it's funny you say that because it seems like a lot of people are starting to sort of move away from hardware and getting into because a lot of plugins are getting really good with how they're modeling hardware, you know, as far as like mastering plugins, compressors, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, it's not really a surprise because it seems like a lot of people nowadays are sort of moving more and more into the box and getting away from spending $25,000 on a mastering compressor and I think if you're a mastering house, it totally makes sense. If you're a professional mixer or if you go to Abbey Road or Skywalker Studios, of course you want to use the outboard that they have because it's not just about the outboard. It's the, it's the cables going to the outboard and coming back. It's the impedance loads and how the audio works. And there's definitely some analog magic that happens. Yeah. And I was really, I was blown away. Um, I had 32 channels of API like a summing mixer. It was 32 channels of API, and I couldn't believe how amazing, just recording drums or anything, just recording it through that mixer, it sounded like it had EQ and compression already put on it. It just made it sound a lot more musical, a lot more natural, a lot more expensive. It sounded legit. It sounded analog. <laughs> and if I could have gotten 32 in and then 32 out so that I had discrete outputs on all 32 of those channels, I would have kept it. The problem was it was a summing mixer, and the whole idea was it ran stereo from those 32 channels into the rest of my gear. And if I wanted to record stereo drums, fantastic, but I just did something last week. They wanted all 12 mic channels, as well they should. So again, I don't have the 32 channels of API anymore, but what I learned about analog versus digital is just like film versus you know, digital video you might take on your phone with, without a filter. Digital is 100% accurate and clean and truthful, and film has character. It, it saturates and it blurs it a little bit, and it does all these things that we're used to seeing as viewers of film. And the same thing can be said for music. Basically, analog stuff just makes it easier to have things sound good. <laughs> that, that's been my experience. Same thing with microphones. Yeah. And recording things through a microphone as opposed to using a sample. Even if it was sampled beautifully at, at Abbey Road or something like that, the stuff that I do here just always seems to work better because I'm doing it custom for whatever it is that I'm playing. And it just sits in the mix better, it works better, and I had not really heard that in virtual form until I started using the universal audio stuff. And, and yeah, I have Waves, and I have SoftTube, and I have, I have a bunch of the other, um, I have all the software, all the software. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's, it, the UAD does a great job with their coding and their, um, their emulation and everything, but I think it's the processors, honestly, that make it sound so amazing. And I love the fact that I can stack up, I've got three eight core um, UAD cards, so I can stack up as many plugins as I want and it's not taxing my CPU at all. It's going onto those cards. And I think the fact that that processing mm -hmm. power is offloaded to the CPU, is half the reason yeah. all their stuff sounds so amazing. My 2500 API compressor, uh, one of the channels went out when I was mastering the Tomb Raider soundtrack back in 2013. And I called API and they're amazing and they said, send it to us, we'll have it back to you within 24 hours. So I basically had three days 
that I didn't have my compressor and I couldn't finish the tracks. But just as a temporary thing to sort of let me still work without printing the final stereo tracks, I pulled up the Waves 2500 compressor and matched all of my signal, you know, the, the routing and everything that I had, all the knobs and faders, and pulled the hardware unit out. And I love Waves and it's amazing, but it didn't sound, it sounded great, but it didn't sound like my 2500. It, it just had a, it, it reacted differently. It had a different sound. It had a different color to it. Um, it was just, it was just different. And before I sold my 2500, uh, UAD had come out with their version of the 2500. And I did the same thing. And it actually sounded very, very close to what I had in hardware format. And again, I don't think that's because they have different ways of emulating or modeling these plugins. I think it's because UAD has all that processing power. And each plugin takes like as much processing power as it needs. And that's a big mm -hmm. reason I think a lot of guys are going in the box now, like big mastering engineers or mixing engineers. Yeah. UAD is really enabling them to get a sound that the outboard boxes have that, and I'm not an engineer at all, I'm a drummer, man. <laughs> I think if a drummer can hear the difference, <laughs> the engineers can really hear the difference, you know? Yeah, it seems like, also like what you were saying, the recallability, you know, and having everything in plug-in form just makes things so much easier to change and not, you know, having to worry about changing any settings on actual hardware is just being able to automate it and just total control of being able to just copy settings onto something else if you need to. It's just right there. And Multiple instances, right? I mean, I did, Waves yeah. had something called Q-Clone. They still have it. Um, I don't use it because I don't have an outboard EQ now, but I use the Q-Clone when I was shaping like a drum track, a kick drum, um, something with lots of transients and things, and I would run a mono signal uh, through like the left channel of my massive passive, let's say. And I could use the Q-Clone and it would ping it. And once I turned it off, I couldn't tell the difference. So the Q-Clone basically did a snapshot of that static EQ position of the massive passive. And that sounded great. And I would do that for probably eight or 10 different channels in a, in a session. But now mm -hmm. I just pull up the massive passive and I can have eight or 10 of them sitting there and, and dialing in and it doesn't yeah. take me the extra five minutes per Q clone, which is a genius plugin if you only have one hardware EQ and you wanna be able to duplicate it. But for me, since it was just the massive passive, just, it's like the world's best tube EQ in the world. But since it was a single <laughs> massive passive sitting underneath my desk and then I could have 10 of them, it, it just seemed like a no brainer. Exactly. Um, you mentioned Cubase. Is that pretty much what you're using nowadays for a lot of your composing? Or It, it, is, it is mostly. Um, I still use D Digital Performer, and I also use Ableton Live uh, and, and Pro Tools when I'm working with live stuff that's been recorded somewhere else. But if I'm composing, my, my main axe is definitely Cubase. Uh, for any reasons in particular, or what do you find just like sort of like the batch exporting or like MIDI functionality or...? Originally, I looked into it. Um, I met uh, Lauren Balf five years ago, maybe. Um, we were together on an awards show, and he's the nicest guy in the world. It's like we're, we're more or less the same age and uh, lots of similar music interests and things like that. And he, every time I see him, um, he would just give me hell for not using Cubase. Like, 
why aren't you using and you were like it was this super obvious thing and i i saw him at a at remote control one time and he sat down with me and, and showed me all the cool stuff that it did and i'm like well i can do that in digital performer as well but then he started showing me um, a lot of the navigation and the way things can be pulled up and hidden and at the time dp just couldn't couldn't do that so i got it at the beginning of uh, Far Cry Primal, which I think was maybe in 2015 or 2016. And I started using it then. And what I really appreciate about it is how it can handle really large groups of tracks. There's so many other things that I love, but that's probably the biggest thing that really wowed me at the beginning. So I can hit a button on my iPad and I can just see kind of whatever group of tracks I want. It could be like all of my strings from a certain library or all of my live percussion tracks or just the tracks that have information in them I've already recorded. It'll call the 3,000 plus tracks in the template down to 20 just with the push of a button. And that was a really big thing for me. I also just, it's, it's German and there's something about that German engineering and that German sort of logical way of processing things, especially the project logical editor, which is a big thing that people are scared of in Cubase. Yeah. I've gotten super geeky with that. And I can literally, I could select, let's say a hi-hat pattern that's all 16th notes. I just tap a button and it'll automatically select and delete all the offbeat 16ths for me. Just And I just oh, built wow. it in, in five minutes and saved it as a preset. Um, you can really program it to do anything. It's it's very very flexible, and um, and really really snappy. Yeah, I really like the logical editor. I found that um, especially for doing stuff where if let's say you have everything at one velocity and you want to randomize it, you can set it up to where it's like you know, randomize the velocity between one twenty and you know one twenty seven, and then just does it automatically, and then just kind of gets you there a little bit faster. It just seems, especially workflow wise. There was definitely some things, I, I, I wrote orchestra music in Digital Performer for 20 years, and to say that it was ingrained in my brain and I knew it like the back of my hand is an, is an understatement. So there was things that I would do, like if I wanted to grab all the brass MIDI information and you know turn the modulation data down or up, I, I knew the shortcuts to do it, and I couldn't figure out how to do it in Cubase, and I was so disappointed. And then I discovered the logical editor and now it's like I can do what I did in Digital Performer, but I have so much more granular control over it. So I can choose just to increase it by 10%, increase it by 10, um, you know, 10 data points, delete it, copy it, um, and that, that's per controller. Like I can click on the MIDI data and it's got, let's say there's seven controllers in there. I have different buttons on my iPad that select a specific controller or you know, increase it or decrease it or even reassign it if it's come from another thing where they didn't have mod wheel for volume, you know, as far as expression is concerned. Um, let's say it was on channel 11 and now I want it to be channel one. I just hit a button and it goes, okay, I'll take channel, I'll take CC 11 and I'll switch it to CC one for you. And it's just like that. I probably spend most awesome. of my time massaging MIDI data when it comes to, um, virtual instruments the the composing and putting it in is easy it's all about massaging the data and i think it's probably cut my time or increased my time like twofold in cubase just because that's awesome just tap those buttons and man it's it's like a super time saver and the batch export you mm -hmm. you mentioned that at the beginning that's a huge thing for me because in my template i have um kind of three sets 
of, of buses and they get, they start super wide, like each, you know, I can export the violins, violas, cellos, uh, and basses from each individual string library I'm using if I want to, all with the reverb and everything printed, or I can just import like high and low strings from each individual library, or I can go and choose all the high strings, all the low strings, and any combination in between just by ticking a couple of boxes and hitting export, and it does it all usually faster than real time, and it's printing everything. Mm -hmm. It'll be, it'll, I mean, and it even says on the box, like you, you rub your hands together and go, hee, it'll say exporting 78 <laughs> channels at once in a three minute queue. It takes like a minute and a half, and all of your stems are exported. That is a huge, huge deal. Now, that's if I'm not using my, um, my Bracasti reverbs, which if it does that, then it has to do um, the traditional way, kind of one at a time. I need to just hit a button and walk away for a couple of hours so it can, it has to solo each track if I want to print the reverb and, and that sort of stuff. But when it's all in the box, uh, it, it's, I mean, it probably saves me multiple days of work every month. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. What kind of reverbs do you find yourself using more and more nowadays? What was, what was the one that you just mentioned? So I got these Bracasti reverbs, they're hardware reverbs. Um, when I was working on Far Cry Primal, because I was recording silly, just silly little things, hitting sticks together or dragging a brick on my brick floor outside the studio. And it had a very small, close, dry sound. And I kept trying different reverbs. I couldn't find anything that I liked. And I, I've always wanted to have a Bracasti ever since they came out. So I ordered two and immediately it just, they sound like the best sounding, most expensive room you've been in. Um, what really convinced me was when I was working on a job at Abbey Road in Studio Two, and I, I was there for the same job about six months apart, and the first time I was there, they had a Sony, some kind of uh, modeling reverb that's like a two unit rack space, and I just pointed to it. I said, what's that? They said, oh, that's our, our um, impulse response of Studio One. So if anyone is in here in Studio 2, which is the smaller one, and they want to have the sound of Studio 1, we just print that on a separate track. They can pull it up anytime. I said, that's really cool. I came six months later, and there was a Bracasti sitting there. And I said, what happened to the Studio 1 impulse responses? Did nobody want that? And they go, oh, no, no, this sounds a lot better. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And it's just literally the first preset, which is called, like, you know, Large Hall or something like that. And they had dialed it in just a little yeah. bit. But it's just an amazing, amazing reverb. It has eight chips. It's basically a single UAD card in each Bracasti. And I've got, I've got four of them because um, they're all on different settings. But when I do that, if I have to do stems, it takes a really long time. So, for example, for Moss, I knew it was going to be all stems. I did not use the Bracastis. And in that case, my second go-to reverb is the UAD um, Lexicon 240. It's the 240, isn't it? That's the closest I've ever heard anything come to the Bracastis in terms of sounding like it was just naturally part of the sound. It just really, really, really struck me how, how smooth and even it sounds. And I'm convinced it's because of those additional processors that UAD has on their cards. Another one that I really love is um, 2C Audio. I've got all of their reverbs, but the B2 is really great for fun kind of effects and things like that. I have a, um, an Eventide Space 
guitar pedal, which does amazing, like crazy out there modulating kinds of 30 second reverb kinds of sounds. And the B2 does that in the box. It's just, it's a processor hog. And it should be because it's, I think it's a dual engine algorithmic, some kind of reverb, but that's got a really nice sound to it as well. One of the things I wanted to talk about, cause I'm a really big fan of how you compose for strings. And I've always loved the way that you approach orchestration, uh, um, especially for stuff like dead space, the order, like, I just love that stuff. All the string sections amongst well, all you. You know, the crazy aleatoric stuff. Um, uh, one of my favorite tracks that you did was on Until Dawn, it's a song, Kong, uh, song called Icicle Elegy. probably one of my it's one of my favorite tracks to listen to and i'm just wondering if you have any tips or methods for writing multiple part uh string sections or just how you go about orchestrating strings or brass is there any sort of way that you approach it that's really really kind of you to say and that's that's actually a great question because i've sort of felt kind of like talking at the beginning we were where i was saying i'm feeling very self-conscious about doing these videos because i'm watching myself on the screen when i'm running these tests for the longest time, I felt really, really self-conscious about my orchestration, uh, my orchestration techniques and my ability to write for orchestra because everyone that I was sort of coming up alongside in school and even once I was out of school, um, other composers that I respected that I was friends with, they were, they were piano majors or they played cello, or they did something that was a lot more musical than drums. <laughs> now, I, I am technically an orchestral, I'm a classically trained orchestral percussionist, so I, can, I do vibes mm -hmm. and marimba and timpani, and I, I do all that stuff, but the bottom line is I'm a drummer, and yeah. I felt like I was at this incredible um, disadvantage because even when I was in the orchestra, I was in the back of the room, you know, sitting, reading my book, waiting to go ting on the triangle, you know, 30 minutes into <laughs> whatever the piece was. And I didn't have that kind of full body experience of immersion in the orchestra and, and hearing like how the different sections were playing within each other and being in the middle of all of it. So I really studied hard out of school. I kind of got a jump start at USC for orchestration. I did not learn any orchestration as an undergrad. My professor was very 20th century oriented, which is great for what I ended up doing a lot of. I was able to just fall back onto stuff that he had taught me. But for real world orchestration, I was completely at a loss. So I really went back and studied um, like Holst and Tchaikovsky and, and also John Williams with the signature series scores that he had and just really geekily took all that apart, read all the orchestration books, tried to do the best I could, um, doing mock-ups of certain cues, um, even something as simple as, I mean, it's not simple, but taking like the first 90 seconds of Pr Princess Leia's theme, and I had the signature score. So I would put that into the computer and both work on my kind of orchestration chops, 
studying it, but also my technical input chops on how to make it sound as close to the recording as I could. And then I would take mm -hmm. that piece, um, put it in a different key, and write something based on what I learned Like at the right after that on the same timeline. I'd write my own piece and then kind of compare them and see how they sounded. So really a mm -hmm. lot of what I've learned um, technically has been through classical studying of orchestration and, and reading books, but I also am a drummer and I think that rhythm and, and meters, uh, especially if you're talking about something like Dead Space, that just comes naturally to me because I played prog rock stuff in high school and college. I mean, like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes and Rush and Genesis and I'm into all the crazy time signatures and like displacing beats and crazy bass lines. I play bass and guitar. That's sort of like my heart comes from that sort of a thing. So when it comes to string writing, a lot of times if it's like an action cue, and I'll get to the icicle elegy bit in a minute, but if it's an action cue, <laughs> um, what I don't want to do is have either drum loops, synthesized percussion, or live percussion driving the beat. I don't want to have like constant 16th notes pounding away on big drums or anything like that. I'm a lot more interested in having especially the strings take that over because they can sit there and bow all day long and maybe do some trade-offs with woodwinds and brass, but I sort of picture the string section as a drum set. And if I'm doing especially action music, it's like the violins are the hi-hat, which is usually the busiest instrument on the drums, or, or the ride cymbal. You know, the hi-hats kind of keeping time and doing the And then the violas are really more like the snare drum. They're kind of doing accents here and there, but they're not playing all the time. And then the cellos and basses are more like the kick drum, and they're sort of providing the like the, the groove is coming from them. So a lot of my action writing, I just fall back, and I didn't even realize I did this until someone said <laughs> something like, I love the way you, like I can tell you're a drummer when I listen to your string stuff. And it was sort of like wincing, like, really? But then they explained <laughs> how they kind of hear drum rhythms, and it, it is really true. That's how I think of it a lot of the time. Um, That's really cool, actually. And it's it's. I've never I've never heard anyone approach it that way. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> There's probably not a lot of drummers, um, you know, composing for string orchestra these days. <laughs> but I, I realized uh, probably five years ago, um, and it started it started changing. My mentality started changing with Dead Space, which was ten years ago now. But I didn't have uh, there was no harmony or or melody or chord progressions in Dead Space that I could fall back on, and it was so much combat music. Really, all I had was rhythm. So that was easy. I can do I can do rhythm without a problem. And what seemed really straightforward to me, like, oh, well, I'll just go 7878-5834, you know, and kind of vary the time signatures the way you would vary a chord progression. It all made sense to me, but other people just, they couldn't find the beat at all. And that was good because yeah. I did offbeat kilter things like that to knock the player kind of off balance and make them feel like they couldn't figure out where the beat was. It made them feel even more uncomfortable. And then you put these horrible monsters in there and it's just, it's like, <laughs> it just completely takes you down. Bad. And that's what it was supposed to do. But that's when I started thinking, you know, it's good that I, I'm into rhythm and stuff like that. Cause I can do, I can do something 
like this. Um, kind of naturally, it just, it just comes from a groove kind of rhythm background. But then I also love doing stuff like uh, Icicle Elegy that was uh, in the game. One of the, the guys, Jack Fiddler, I think his name was, they wanted to have him playing a fiddle and you could hear it sort of different parts of the game. And it kind of went through a couple of instances. And I think that was on the first of three recording sessions I did for Until Dawn. But I'm sure that they asked for maybe a 30 second fiddle thing that sounded like something that would be from a classical or Baroque kind of piece. And in true Jason Graves fashion, I wrote that piece, which is probably three minutes long with strings accompaniment and the, you know, the violin goes all over the place. And I just had so much fun doing that because it was so different from anything else. And then I got to record it with the, uh, with the string players, which was, which was just amazing. I love doing stuff like mm -hmm. that. Do you have any uh, client from hell stories? Anything that you've ever experienced coming up as a composer that was just uh, a hellacious experience that you can talk about? <laughs> right. Um, as soon as you said it, my mind went straight back to when I was working in Los Angeles. The, uh. the composer that I worked for is the one that wrote the Intel logo. Bum, 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 bum. Um, mm -hmm. And it was the Pentium 3, I think, when I was there that we were working on. So it would go dum, 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 and it would have a little bling that said Pentium 3, like a little sparkle thing at the top. Mm -hmm. And well, there was 10 people from, uh, from Intel in Japan that came over, and it was very much decision by committee, which is the way a lot of work experience I had in LA went down, which is the main reason that I ended up leaving. And then fortunately, after about five years of doing other things, kind of fell into video games. We did something like um, 100 plus variations of this four note theme with a little sparkly sound at the end. And sometimes the four notes would be in octaves, sometimes they'd be harmonized, the sparkle would have different sounds. And it was just process of elimination. They came in every day for about 10 days just saying um, yes and no to things, and then we'd have to do combinations. And it wasn't writing music. And it's a, it's a half-second logo, and that's totally fine. I was happy to do it. But musically speaking, it was just soulless and, and draining. And <laughs> you can only do so much with a little tiny piece of music like that, or even a 30-second commercial. I did so many commercials uh, for ad agencies and things where you're speaking with the ad agency, and the ad agency is having you jump through all these hoops and no, that doesn't work, let's start again. And they're changing direction and completely new pieces of music every time. And the client's not heard a single thing. And then they finally feel like they've gotten to where they think is the best part of the music. They send it to the client and the client says, I don't want this, this isn't what I was thinking. And it's back to the drawing yeah. board. You could, I, I could never speak to the client. There was always this other human in the way. And that's what I love about film and about games is I'm working with a director or I'm working with the audio director who is joined at the hip by either the creative director or even the, uh, the producer of the game if it's a smaller company. And we're able to all sit in a room and talk and come up with ideas and you're not spinning your wheels trying to guess what you think they might want because you can't speak with them. You know exactly what they want yeah. and you've met in person and it's just mm -hmm. such a better, more satisfying kind of thing, musically speaking, to work on 
10 or 20 minutes of music in a week and have it all be in the right place knowing that it's going to go into the game the way that you wrote it as opposed to working on 30 seconds of music for six weeks and having nothing to show for it. That was that was the killer yeah. that pretty much made me leave Los Angeles. I decided that I would rather write music on my own time, the kind of music I wanted to write, and not even get paid for it and go do a Joe job somewhere than be a professional quote-unquote composer and do the same 30-second spot for six weeks. It just yeah. was not in my blood. I needed to... I needed to I put my heart and soul into it, and it was killing me. <laughs> yeah. So I got out. Do you find that doing video games seems to be a lot more uh, creatively freeing as far as just being able to just sort of write more from your inspirations? I do, but I do think I have a bit of a biased view now because... It's probably pretty easy to say that ever since 2008, so that's been more than half my career, 10 years ago, my general experience with new developers who are looking for a score is one of two things. Either, hey, we really loved fill-in-the-blank game, um, and we like a score that does that same thing, in its own way, because we want it to be completely individual and unique and, and different. But we loved, you know, however you had that implemented or whatever, you know, there's an example of something that they like. Or they'll come to me like, um, like Tomb Raider or The Order or uh, Moss, for example. There were no real preconceptions. It was basically like, hey, do you want to work on this? What do you think would be a great idea to do for the music? And by the way, we'd love something that's really original and unique. And the, the, usually the, the number one line is, you know, something that you can hear five seconds of and recognize it as our game, which is a really, really yeah. steep kind of thing to do right out of the gate. I've, yeah. I've found usually if I'm you know 10 or 15 minutes into the score, then things are starting to sort of get honed in and, and I'm dialing in that specific aesthetic for that project. But that's what they always want. They want something different and unique and that is the opposite of my experience when I was in Los Angeles, but I was also doing reality TV I mean, there was no, yeah. or ghostwriting for a film or doing commercials where there's no, creative expression in commercials it's about this is the temp track and we want you to make it sound like this so it is i think in general more creative i i think in part because it's so much more of a community in games it takes so many people all putting together equal parts of of energy to make this cohesive project work and gel whereas with film or tv or commercials it's usually about the director you know, or the creative director or, or the producer if it's a commercial. And there, it's a singular vision that's sort of being passed down the totem pole. Where with games, I feel like it's a lot more collaborative, especially with uh, many of the smaller studios. It's definitely mm -hmm. a lot more collaborative. You, you can feel it. I mean, you, there's just it's a different kind of energy. Everyone's looking out for everybody else. Everyone's doing this because they want to make the, get the best possible game that they can. And... There's no ego involved. Yeah, that just seems like basically the perfect combination for coming out with the best product is just everything's cool, everyone's cool with each other, and it just 
not having someone sort of dictate a specific vision musically, which I think can hinder you, you know, but I think people who are maybe directors who aren't musicians, they don't really know how to communicate. They just sort of have an idea and they're just like, okay, here, do this. And not knowing that that can kind of put a damper on your creativity. And I understand that a lot of it is, is trust. And it's hard to trust someone you've never met before and someone that you've really only listened to maybe a demo or something like that. And that's where, especially I mentioned Dead Space 10 years ago, I've got a, fortunately this catalog of projects that they said we want something super unique and they let me do that. And other people I know have said like between Dead Space or Tomb Raider or Far Cry Primal or Moss, those are all super, super different things. We know that you can do something really unique and we know that you can deliver quality and you can do it on time and all the normal business stuff that's important. And that's something that you just can't, you can't convince people about just by talking about it. You can't say like, I'm a really good composer and I can work really hard under pressure and get people have to be <laughs> able to see it. And you just, it has to be demonstrated mm -hmm. through projects and that just comes through experience and time. For me, it comes from 18 years of working primarily in games and kind of going after those sort of projects because that's what makes me happy. And um, it's, it's a, it's a up-road struggle no matter where you are on the experience level. You're, I think the best composers, um, artists, anyone creative are, are constantly challenging themselves and trying to do something new. So a new project is both liberating and exciting because they'll let you do anything, but also utterly terrifying because you're pretty much convinced that this is the project that you're gonna fall flat on your face and fail miserably. <laughs> yeah. Jerry Goldsmith said that in a documentary. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're, as far as composers go, you're one of the composers I think who think outside of the box and you know as far as in, you know instrumentation goes and um i'm sure you've heard this brought up a lot but the whole like putting chicken fencing on top of a trash can and bowing it i remember when i saw that for the first time it just blew my mind i was just like damn like to me i think that sounds cool to other people i think they'd rather blow their brains out than have to hear something like that but like i hear like in the context of how it's used how it's just you know super interesting and um what are some of your favorite recording techniques or crazy instruments that you've come up with over the years or anything that you've been wanting to try that you haven't tried out yet? Oh, that's a really loaded question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry. Totally fine. Um, the, the, chicken, the chicken wire on top of the trash can lid was definitely a eureka moment because I didn't bring both of those into the studio together with the intent of using them at the same time. I brought the trash can link because I figured I could bang on it. I brought the chicken wire because I, I thought I could bang on that. And it wasn't until like the, well, duh, if I put the wire on top of the lid, then it, you get this cool metal resonating chamber. Um, I think a lot of it comes from being mm -hmm. a drummer and seeing rhythm and sound kind of anywhere. You know, the most simple example would be at a stoplight, banging on the steering wheel, tapping the steering wheel, and then tapping the part where the horn is and where the seat is, and everything makes a different sound. But also having my 20th century kind of background with my professor, we were putting triggers on cereal boxes 
and walking around the concert hall for a performance and like triggering MIDI with these cereal boxes and it was called cereal music spelled like the cereal that you eat not cereal like 20th century mm -hmm. cereal just lots of fun tongue and cheek yeah. stuff like that so it's it's sort of ingrained in my brain now to try to do something as different as possible and being able to record my primary instrument which is basically the world uh, I've literally recorded my desk because it just sounded great at the time. I've got four or five containers of things that like protein powder and stuff has come in and I'll play on those. It's kind of like all bets are off. So I'm constantly looking for, just give me an excuse to find something new to do. Um, I think probably my favorite sound that I've done so far was in Far Cry Primal because I had a 99 cent plastic bucket from Lowe's with literally dirt in it and it was <laughs> it was hooked up um like with some expensive tube microphone um on the kind of on the bottom pointed to the bottom of it and then and then another um expensive ribbon microphone on the top and i i just like saying that it's like the best sounding bucket of dirt the world has ever seen because I could grind um, a, a tree stump in there and either twist it or kind of pound it or even push it sort of against the bottom of the bucket and you got all this low end but you also got this really smooth top end. And for Far Cry Primal it was perfect. It was basically like three different sounds in one. That's the sort of thing that's, that's it, I can say it's fun to do now but like Jerry Goldsmith said, at the time when I was doing it, I was thinking, is this, this is the dumbest thing I've ever tried. Is this even going to work? I don't know. But I have to give <laughs> myself a chance and basically say, today I'm recording dirt. <laughs> there, I said it. I'm recording yeah. dirt today. And spend a couple of hours, like, you know, a little bit more gravel in there, a little bit less gravel. Is it the material of the bucket? And not pressure myself to actually do two minutes of music that day. This is my discovering how the best way to record dirt really sounds. And I have to make myself relax and say, like, it's okay. Because I'm just, I'm very project-driven. And if I, if I haven't written two or three minutes of music in a day, I, I somehow feel slightly incomplete. Because after 18 years, mm -hmm. probably 17 and a half of those years have just been outputting music. And yeah. it's, it's important, I think, to, to let go and get a little bit of perspective sometimes. You know, record some dirt. Why not? And that's cool because it's like there's no books that can tell you how to record dirt. So it's like, you <laughs> yeah, know, I think that kind of that kind of makes the process a lot a lot more fun because you're just trying like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to, you know, put a bunch of stuff in front of me, you know, rocks and Aztec death whistles and bushes and just make something cool happen. You know, and you did. That's I was actually listening to that score a few days ago. And um, it's just such a cool like it it has that very earthy primal vibe to it and it's just fun to listen to it's funny because um i really appreciate you saying that and i pulled it up maybe a month ago i came across it and when you're in the middle of it you just don't it you always grow tired of whatever it is you're working on if it was dead space it wasn't scary enough whatever i was working on it needed to be scarier, it needed to be more intense, just because I was so beaten down by it that it had no effect on me anymore. And Far Cry was the same way. It was like this, you know, there's no real keys. There was rhythm 
and and lots of screaming thanks to Maluka, and I got to do lots of fun stuff with the death whistles and um, you know playing kinds of funny things and and pitching them down and putting extra reverb on them and stuff. But I didn't really have that mm-hmm. outside listener experience, and I listened to it maybe a, a month ago. It was like, what was this guy smoking? Like, it was there was stuff <laughs> going all over the soundscape, and like, in these huge drums yeah. would come in, and it was like so dynamic. And I didn't, I, I kind of felt like, okay, me two years ago was was doing what I hoped that I would have been able to do, but I didn't feel like I was doing it two years ago because I was in the middle of it and I was like how did I get that you know that big low punchy sound and what's with the boy I wish that I could have remembered half of what I had worked on I do remember how I recorded the dirt and some of the (laughs) some of the other (laughs) things as well but um I think that's the the blessing and the curse of of working so much is um there's so yeah. much that I end up forgetting, but then I'm kind of able to come with a blank slate later and, and listen to it. There was a, a guy that worked with me for six years uh, named Dan Schneider, and I just had dinner with him last night. He lives in town, and we see each other occasionally. And I told him uh, my favorite thing that he had ever said when he was working with me, and I was reminded of this when you were just talking about, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to figure out how to bang on some of these things. And I was in the middle of yeah. one of my discovery crises, trying to figure out how to make something sound somehow the way I was hearing it in my head. And he came by and you know knocked on the door. He's like, hey, how's it, go- how's it going? And I'm like, awful. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just like making this up as I go along. And I, 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 don't, I, I don't know, man. He goes, you know, there's a word for that. It's called composing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, welcome yeah. to the life of a composer. Right. I mean, yeah, you're making it up as you go along. And I'm I think I'm very much I, I appreciate that more now. And I know that if I'm working on something new and I'm not half terrified, half excited, then I'm probably not pushing the boundary enough. Um, I yeah. don't think I have gotten to the point, and I always say this to developers at the beginning, is my job is to go so far out beyond what you guys are expecting the score to be in a unique individual way that you're going to pull me back and go, okay, Jason, that's, that, that's enough. We don't need to go that far. You know, Pull it back 20% and then we're good to go. And no one's ever said that. Yeah. No one's ever said that. So I rely on them a lot for kind of that outside perspective forest for the trees because when I'm in the middle of it, I just, I just never have it. That's really cool. Um, I want to talk a bit about because I know you know that you're a drummer and and you would probably consider yourself you know a drummer at first. Um, who are some of your biggest influences drum wise? Oh geez, so I have like two sets of influences. One of them would be the guys that I just have seen play or watch play and think. That's amazing. I wish someday that I could be like that, but I know I never will. And that's guys, uh, more jazz guys, like Buddy Rich mm-hmm. or or Gene Krupa. Um, just the really, really technical uh, Dave Weckl, uh, the guys that are even playing still today, like Dave Weckl, um, Vinnie Caliuta, just really, really amazing. But then you've got kind of the rock guys. And I love them because... While I will never play like John Bonham, I can, and I did all through high school and college, play two Led Zeppelin songs and pretend like I'm John Bonham. 
So uh, Phil <laughs> Collins, especially when I was first using, um, first learning drums, I played a lot of Phil Collins songs. My teacher uh, had a Phil Collins, like drums by Phil Collins, and he's always been such a, a tasty player. But that opened it up to, to Yes and um, Rush, of course. Neil Peart was just absolutely amazing. And I, I played yeah. all that stuff and just soaked it in and could play pretty much. Being the geek that I was, I would only play songs that I could get the drum music for because if I played a fill wrong and it wasn't like what I heard in the headphones, it would bother me. And I didn't want to sit down and transcribe <laughs> the whole thing. So I've got probably 20 books of transcribed drum songs. Uh, Foo Fighters too. Um, Taylor Hawkins is just, what an amazing sound. And in that same breath, of course, you have to mention Dave Grohl because they're both just such, yeah. they're like the John Bonhams of today. I mean, they just hit so hard. It sounds like compressed yeah. and everything just when they sit behind the kit. And I'll play some Foo Fighters songs and after one song, I mean, I'm just wiped. It's no wonder that <laughs> Taylor's skinny as a rail do a two-hour show and do that for six months i mean their stuff is just really fast um but yeah that's that's the kind of stuff that i'll sit down and play just for kicks even now um or as, as a part of my exercise it's great because drumming is really good full body exercise you're literally moving oh, yeah. everything and i'm i'm more wiped out after that than i am if i ever had you know gone to the gym or played racquetball or done any of that other stuff yeah drums are definitely an instrument that if you don't keep up on it you're just you won't be able to play. Like I used to get into drums and I was trying to learn for a while after uh, my first band broke up. I was like, I'm going to try and learn to be a drummer and start trying to play. And I was trying to get into doing like fast double bass. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, now nah, I'm just going to stay with guitar. I was just <laughs> like, this is like a whole nother level of dedication that I don't know if I want to do. So then I got into programming. I discovered that and I was just like, Oh, I could just program it. I don't need a drummer now. So there you go until you really need to play it live. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's something that I got. I, I did a film maybe four years ago now that was um, called Adrenaline. And they had a band already lined up that was that had recorded like a music video for it. And they were going to use that song in the end credits. And it was about street racing or like, I mean, street racing, but also professional like drag racing on tracks and things. And I love the idea yeah. of writing a score that basically sounded like that end credits song. Like, what if you hired that band to do your film score? And what I loved was it ticked all my boxes of, it was something different that, uh, I mean, most film scores are not like done by a rock band. So check number one. Number two, I hadn't done anything like that. And that's always exciting to me to do something new. And then number three, it gave me excuses to spend money on gear. <laughs> so like the stars all <laughs> aligned and I had wanted to buy a new drum set for the longest time. I, I only had my old Slingerland kit from college and I wanted to get a proper rock kit. So that was my excuse to buy the drum set that I have now, which is just this gorgeous Mapex maple tons of toms and cymbals everywhere and I got all the microphones I needed and I was able to buy some more guitars and, and some amps and everything and just kind of really geek out and record that score 100% live, no plugins or anything like that. And um, so I kind of woodshed. I'm not a lead guitar player at all. I can do rhythm. Um, and I discovered that being mm -hmm. a drummer, like once I knew the shapes with my left hand, like my right hand was, it was there. It was in the pocket. I didn't have to practice that. It was just fingering mm -hmm. the chords with my left hand. So that was a lot of fun. And I still, any chance I get to pull out um, the guitars or the basses, 
I'll do it in a heartbeat. And the drums are in the other room, just set up all the time with all the mics ready to go. And it just, nothing sounds like live drums. And I, yeah. I'm, I've got all the drum plugins and they all sound great. But I think being a drummer, I want to hear, you know, the, the difference between like playing kind of loud and playing really loud, just the way the drums respond and the way the air in the room responds to the preamps mm. and, and all that stuff. It's, it's really fun. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun, especially having a, you know, a drum set set up. It's like, why would you even need to, you know, that'd be like me probably programming guitar. It's just like, exactly. no, I'd just rather grab my guitar and play it. Yeah. You know, over the, you know, your whole career, are there any things that you've done wrong in the past that you think that you've learned from that made you a better composer today? Wow. Or any things that you've done that you were just, that really sort of changed your outlook on how you see either the business or just how you write or that's a really good question let me take a sip of tea and think about that (laughs) Hmm. ponder over tea yeah um that is a good that is a good question You know, I, I wish that I had a story that was like, I did this thing and I thought it was right, and it turns out I totally messed up. Um, I, I'll, I'll answer your question in a, in a slightly different way, because I do okay. have kind of an illustration that I think m- made me kind of who I am today and the, the composer that I am, and especially gave me the kind of work method that I have today. And that was when I was in Los Angeles, still in school even, and I can't believe that they gave me a diploma for graduating because as soon as I got this job about two months in, assistant writing for this composer, I never went back to class except for the recording sessions. And um, I was working all the time. And it was literally like I'd be doing this, you know, reality TV show or a, a second pass on a commercial or my boss was ghostwriting on a film. So I was also ghostwriting for him and there'd be a courier outside because this is the mid 90s. There was no technology to do things on the Internet. There's a courier outside just standing there waiting to take the three quarter inch tape to the mixing room and dub it and like put it on television or go to the ad agency or whatever it was because it was going to air the next day. And that sort of pressure taught me to, whether I wanted to or not, work really, really quickly. And it got to the point, my first TV show, I think I had something like, you know, seven rounds of corrections back and forth with the three executive producers that were on it. And it took me four days to get all the music finally approved and sent off. And by the time I had left Los Angeles, um, I was at the point of no corrections for the producers and I could do an entire show in, in a single sitting, which was, it was a 42 minute show. So it was usually about 40 minutes of music because all the stuff was just wall to wall music. So I could do 35 to 40 minutes of, you know, stupid underscore for these reality TV things, but I could knock it all out in a day. Mm. Not because, I was trying to beat a record or anything, but because I just, I knew it had to get done and I learned really quickly to satisfy the deadline before I satisfied my kind of internal creative voice. Because if you listen to your internal voice, you'll never finish anything. 
there's always something extra mm-hmm. you can do. And oh, well, what if I just yeah. try this? And I'm so deadline driven um, that it comes down to literally the way I said at the beginning, if it's three hours of music and I have three months, I work backwards and say that's two minutes a day. Even within that two minutes a day, I split my day in half. I need to have my first minute finished before noon, which means if I start at 8 a.m., the first you know 15 seconds need to be finished by 9, and by the time 11 a.m. rolls around, I better have 45 seconds finished. And I work very much in a um, horizontal manner like that. Everything gets finished, the first 15 seconds, all polished, and then move on. And I'm able to work backwards even within my day where I'll say to my wife, I'll be downstairs at 5 o'clock, and at 4.59, I'm hitting, like, you know, shut down on the computer, and everything's been exported and uploaded, and I think it's just through, it's like making a diamond, only through, like, sheer pressure and and, and time can something <laughs> like that come into being, but it really did shape the way I, I thought about music, and I've never really had any, like, emotional... Um, attachments to things like because I, I never had the chance to write music for myself my my wife would introduce herself to some friends back in the day like when we were just married and they said oh your your husband's a composer that's so great I bet he's written you like so many um, sweet songs and she's like he's never <laughs> written me a single thing because <laughs> I was still in school like, when I oh. started when I started writing and it was for someone else so I if I had to write something by myself, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to start. That's something where I envy other people that maybe they don't have a job and they're trying to figure out how do I woodshed, how do I get used to writing music, and all I can say is write music every day, because that's what I've always done. Of course, I also read that that's mm-hmm. what John Williams does. I mean, years and years and years ago, he said the, the three things that he does every day is he writes music, he reads, and he takes, and he walks. He goes on walks. And that, that sort of stuck with me because it is as you know being a musician and a composer it's very much like a muscle and the more you do it the more you realize um just like cooking you've never cooked before and you're like i have no idea what i'm doing i don't even know what to do to this chicken and you fast forward five years where maybe you've studied cooking and watched all these classes and have all these cookbooks and you're looking at the same piece of chicken five years later thinking oh my gosh how am i going to decide how to fix this chicken there are so many different ways to do it you know, it's more of a process of elimination <laughs> as opposed to, I have no ideas. And that just comes from experience. Yeah. Is that pretty much how you approach crunch time when you will say, okay, I got eight hours today. I need to make two minutes of music. Like, how do you deal with any like writer's block, you know, mental interruptions where you're just like, oh, like, where do I want to take this? Or how do you, or does it just kind of, once you get into that gear, it just sort of flows? It's, yeah. Writers, because that's you know, one of the it, things that always fascinates me. And and I'm always curious to hear other people other people talk about it too. Um, I've I've never really had writer's block, and I don't want to say that as some like elitist, amazing Mozart who just like spins things out of his head and 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 puts them down without any effort. There's always there's always effort, but I think because I've always been so deadline driven, there's never really been like, you know, do I feel creative today? Not that people with writer's block get up in the morning and think about that. But I just I haven't had the the option because it's just kind of get up and go. And probably the first 10 years yeah. I was working in games, I know I spent a lot of time listening to film scores. I love watching film and I used to collect 
back when you bought CDs, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of film scores. And I would listen to those kind of for inspiration. So if I worked during the day and I was working on a World War II game, then in the evening I was listening to maybe like 1942 um, by John, or 41, I guess it was, by John Williams or some of the classic old, like Jerry Goldsmith kind of things, just to look for inspiration. And I kind of had a plan going in the next morning. Um, eventually, I think I just got kind of brain dead and I needed a bit of a break in the evening. So I stopped listening to other people's music and realized that even though I wasn't sitting with my headphones on for 30 minutes the night before I went to sleep, um, listening to 1941, when I woke up in the morning, I still had a lot of ideas of what to do. And maybe I trained my brain to do that. I'm, I'm not sure. But it gets to the point now where, again, with that schedule, like I know today I'm working on this project, and then tomorrow I have to work on this other project, and then Friday I need to make sure that I get that third project finished. So the night before and the morning of that day, I've pretty much already figured out what I need to do. And I used to play games and kind of figure out if I could figure out what key that I was hearing it in my head or get the chord progressions down the correct way. Or It just comes down to sitting down in the morning and inputting and then massaging. And I think that's maybe why it's not, for me now at least, the last five or six years. It's not a matter of a creative block or not thinking of something to do. It's just more like that five-year-later chicken analogy, which hopefully I won't bring up again. Like, oh my gosh, I have so many different things. What <laughs> is it that I'm going to do? And I've usually decided that the night before or the morning of. And by the time I get to the studio, which is in my house, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of pen to paper, so to speak, and making it sound as mm -hmm. good as I can before that five o'clock deadline. Because I know when there's a super crunch and I have to work in the evening as well, I'm going to start suffering about three days in. I, I, can't, um, I can't perform as efficiently if I'm working more than like eight to five. And sometimes I have to do it because there's just too much music that needs to get done. But I promise you, I will be in a terrible mood the entire time I'm doing it, and I will think that everything I'm doing is horrible because I don't have that perspective <laughs> of kind of getting away and like cleansing the palate. Being that you've been so gung-ho and just sort of running with writing music, uh, if there was something else that you could do for a living or like a second choice, what would that be? I know that's hard to ask for musicians because it's like, oh, well, I love music. I'd always want to do music. But sometimes I always wonder you know, people who are so focused on music or their job and been doing it for so long, if, you know, if you could do another job or, or something, what would it be? That's, that's tough. Um, I, so, I mean, the same kind of question would be like, well, if you had all the money in the world and you didn't have to make a living, I mean, the obvious questions that you ask people that I ask people, you know, or you want to be a musician. Well, if you had a bajillion dollars, you know, what would you do? They'd be like, I would have gear and I would be writing music. And, um, that's always yeah. the, the proper answer. But for me, I'm actually a huge, um, animal nut. I mean, we have, we have all kinds of animals here on the property and it's not the main reason that we moved from the city downtown, but it was definitely high on the list of good things that could happen if we moved out here where mm -hmm. all the woods are. So I would probably um, 
have some sort of a job uh, as like a an animal conservatory or a place where I know if my wife was involved, we'd have like a, a shelter for for dogs and cats. But we also That's have really cool. um, we have parrots. I mean, and all kinds of other birds and and porcupines and tortoises. And there's a bunny hopping around my feet as we speak. <laughs> so it would probably be some sort of you know animal habitat slash conservatory zoo kind of thing because that would be a lot of fun. That's really cool. That's kind of my second passion, which I guess is the the question you were asking. Yeah, well, that's cool because you're kind of doing both, right? You're sort of doing both at the same time. We are. It's like I'm sort of living vicariously through the animals uh, in the morning and then at the at the end of the day because what I love about them is they don't care about deadlines. They don't, they don't care <laughs> if, you know... Um, well, for example, if Rufus, the, the bunny's name is Rufus, if he accidentally chewed on one of the cords and now my f right floor tom is no longer functioning because my 50-foot cable got chewed, you know, he, he doesn't care about that. He just thought it was something that was good to eat. It's like a really nice perspective. You know, they're all so happy mm -hmm. when you go out and see them and they're kind of interacting and doing their own thing. We've got uh, two different aviaries with all the parrots and then a big fenced-in area where there's like a turkey and, and ducks and geese and chickens and things like that. And it's just, it's outdoors and it's like the exact opposite of everything that's around me right now. All the, all the technology and, and computers and recording equipment. It's about as far away as I can get from that. And then some because mm -hmm. the animals are just entertaining in, in, and, of, in, a, in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I saw it running behind you when you were talking. I saw it kind of like scurrying yeah. behind you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually might um, might open the door just to make sure that. So bunnies, uh, bunnies are really interesting. This is the second one we've had, but you can litter box train them just like cats. Oh, really? So that's why he he stays in the house. He stays upstairs in kind of my my quadrant of rooms that are the studio. But his litter box is in the other room, and I only close the door if I'm doing um, a recording or something like that. And, you know, just like a mm -hmm. cat, you want to make sure they can access their litter box. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't know rabbits can do that. <laughs> They're very, very smart, uh, especially the bigger ones. Um, the smaller ones, like the, the really small ones... Um, a lot of times they're more scared than anything else just because they're, they're so uh, prey-driven, being afraid that they're going to get picked up and, and eaten because of their size. But the bigger ones, um, like Flemish Giants, which Rufus is half Flemish Giant and half Lop. So he's kind of a big rabbit and he's got these loppy ears. He's super cute. I put pictures of him up on like Twitter and stuff every now and then. But the bigger ones, <laughs> they really they act more like cats. And our cats will get up here and play with them and wrestle with them and do all this stuff. He's super nosy and follows you around everywhere. And yeah, it's, it's great. He's the perfect <laughs> studio companion because he's also dead quiet. That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, of all the things you've done, what would you say is your greatest creative ambition, either personally or professionally? <laughs> um, that's such an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, all right. So two things come to mind immediately, and I'll just do a quick version of both of those. The first one that I that I think of, and they're both they're both with music, um, was the score for um, the Order, eighteen eighty six, and I think that one still registers with me personally because number one, Sony's amazing, 
and they literally said, what do you want to do with this score? And I told them, and, you know, I said, I want to not use any violins, and I want to do all these crazy orchestrations, and I want to have three contrabass clarinets and three contrabassoons, and I want to go to Abbey Road and record in the small room, not the big room, because we want to get this certain sound, and, you know, I had all this whole laundry list of things, and they just said, okay. So I got to spend between two different sessions, basically a week at Abbey Road, and um, was just really, really... I couldn't believe how amazing it sounded. That's the first time I had done a truly 100% live score that I didn't have to take back home and mix myself or uh, augment with all my percussion sounds or take my orchestra samples and put it on top of or you know, part of it was live and, and two-thirds of the score was all my orchestra samples via MIDI. It was all done like completely legit and I just loved the way it turned out. Everything from the choir with 24 voices to the yeah. 20 violas and crazy strings. Um, so that was, that was the first one. But honestly, the, the second thing that popped in right behind that is this score to Moss. And that's not really because of any technical achievements. I love the fact that I could play my ukulele on something finally. That was great. And I love being able to play hammered dulcimer, too. I bought one when we were in the mountains of North Carolina probably four years ago, hoping I would be able to use it on something. And I was able to use it on this. It's more the style awesome. of the music for Moss, which is kind of the music that, if I did have no job writing music for other people and I was writing music just for myself, that's the kind of music that I would write. Very melodic and relaxing and kind of soothing, um, which is the opposite of, you know, The Order or Dead Space or Tomb Raider. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of stuff I really, really love doing. It's just not what I'm asked to do a lot. And that's totally fine. I'm happy to go rub rocks together and get paid for it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's a different kind of satisfaction, right? It's more of a technical, creative yeah. satisfaction where... Just listening to some of these soloists play these songs in Moss just gets me goosebumps. And it is, it's nice because it's really the polar opposite of the order. It was all done here in my studio. Two soloists in Florida and Los Angeles recorded their parts completely dry, just in a spare room like this. And I mixed and uh, recorded everything else here. And the end result, um, I mean, I would like to think holds up quality-wise, because it's soloists and small ensembles, holds up with something like The Order in terms of kind of authenticity and, and emotional power. It's just a different, a different way that it's done. And um, I love that with technology, that I can write a piece and have it finished at three in the afternoon and text Kristen, my uh, woodwind player in Florida, and like an hour later, she's got the flute and oboe parts finished and I'm putting them into the computer and wow that was easy yeah yeah it's so easy nowadays with you know the internet and how fast files can travel and stuff not being on tape anymore it's just it's like texting it's so easy to get a hold of somebody I know I love it gone are the days of the courier standing outside my door and patiently waiting me for <laughs> you because you, you had to stripe the tape first with time code and if it's a 40 minute show that means you have to spend 40 minutes striping the tape then you have to back it up and and lay down the audio so it's just oh it was 
too much pressure. It's a lot easier just to hit upload. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, Jason, I want to really thank you for taking the time to talk and hang out. It's really cool to talk to you and uh, definitely uh, looking forward to hearing the rest of the score for for Moss. Uh, just the three tracks I heard were really cool. So, I'm, you know, the fact that you're so happy with how it came out and you had a lot of fun working on it, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing it all in its entirety. Oh, that's great. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear what you think. It's definitely something... Um, I mean, like I said, something that the kind of music I love being able to do, but also even the combat music is is lighthearted and more fast paced than, you know, traditional kind of game combat music. There's no giant drums and blaring horns. It's all like oboe and flute concertos almost. <laughs> um, looking forward to everything else that you come out with, you know, big fan of yours. And uh, thank oh, you. I saw the rabbit again. <laughs> oh yeah, he's he's around. That's for sure. He'll start jumping up and putting his feet on my legs soon because he wants me to pay attention to him. Yeah, just place him on the keyboard and just put some instrument on and just let him write something. Just... <laughs> <laughs> He'll go blink blunk, blink blunk, blink blunk as he hops around. Ah, uh, that's the next score. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, yeah, <laughs> I just want to thank you again. Uh, you know, thank you again for taking the time and oh, you know, totally it's my pleasure cool talking to you. And thanks for thanks for all the great questions. I think the ones that make me pause and say that's a really good question that that means that's a really good question. Oh well, thank you. That's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to thank you guys for tuning into the podcast. Uh, as always, if you guys like what we're doing, make sure to find us on iTunes or you can go to the Apple podcast to find us on there. Also SoundCloud, YouTube. And if you like what we're doing, please share, tell a friend, subscribe to us. And if you can, if you find us on iTunes, please leave us a rating. Let us know what you guys think as we're going to continue to keep bringing on great guests for you guys. And if you want to learn more about Jason Graves, you can head over to his website at jasongraves.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.